Well, you know, we've all heard it, and often it's not just one, but more than one. I was going home on Friday afternoon around 3 o'clock, and I was near the Kroger at Rutland Commons, if you know where that is. And I saw and heard a rescue truck with its siren blaring. About 30 seconds later, I heard another siren, and from my right came an ambulance carefully running the red light. And after I made my turn, I discovered the reason for the sirens, an accident right across from Adley High School, probably a student, I would imagine. We were directed around the car that was rear-ended. Now, it looked minor, but for all of us who've been in accidents, we know something, don't we? No accident is minor, is it? You know, the effects can last for weeks in terms of maybe possible personal injury or in terms of getting the vehicle repaired and even legal matters. But if it wasn't for the attention-getting sirens, especially the last one, the ambulance may have gotten into their own accident. So where am I going with this? I want us to point out today Paul's attention-getting in our passage for today. And, but instead of a siren, Paul used sarcasm twice. And we know what sarcasm is, right? Maybe we've used it or maybe it's been used on us. You know, sarcasm can be a brutal thing. You know, it can destroy relationships depending on how it's used. But desperate times call for desperate measures, so the saying goes. Now, besides his use of sarcasm, as a Corinthians real spiritual leader, Paul let them know that he was going to also pay them a visit in part to inspect their spiritual fruit. But this inspection was not something that Paul was looking forward to, far from it. It was a dreadful thing. You remember a letter that he had already written to them. We, we covered that in the earlier part of 2 Corinthians. You know, how he blasted them. And in his own estimation, he went overboard and he was pointing out to them their, their flaws, their faults, their failures. And then remember how Titus returned to Paul with the good report and how they received his tear-stained letter with a positive thing. But now, Paul was relieved with that letter, but there was more work to be done. For Paul, there was much more at stake than merely collecting the money for the famine relief in, in Judea. And his dread was mixed with a sorrowful anticipation, afraid of what he might find among them when he got there. But his inspection and even his sarcasm was for a purpose. It was to show them that he loved them with the love of the Lord. And even more importantly, he desired them to honor Christ, his king, and their king. And so in our passage for today, 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verses 11 to 21, we're going to see that Paul is getting to the end of his correspondence toward his dear friends, to his dear friends, the Corinthians. A few more sentences, and then he's finished. A few more sentences to somehow tell the Corinthians how much spiritual danger that they are in, and again, how much he cares for them. So open your Bibles, if you haven't done it yet, to 2 Corinthians chapter 12, 11 to 21. And let's read together at first 2 Corinthians 12, 11 to 18, as we see Paul pulling out all the stops, using biting sarcasm to not only attack the false teachers one more time, 
but also to try to wake up the Corinthians to their spiritual reality. So follow with me, if you will. I have been a fool, Paul says, but you forced me to it, for I ought to have been commended by you. For I was not at all inferior to these super apostles, even though I'm nothing. The signs of a true apostle were performed among you with utmost patience, with signs and wonders and mighty works. For in what were you less favored than the rest of the churches, except that myself it was not a burden to you? Forgive me this wrong. Here for the third time, I'm ready to come to you, and I will not be a burden, for I am seeking not what is yours, but I seek you. For children are not obligated to save up for their parents, but parents for their children. And I will most gladly spend and be spent for your souls. If I love you more, am I to be loved less? But granting that I myself did not burden you, I was crafty, you say, and got the better of you by deceit. Did I take advantage of you through any of those whom I sent to you? I urged Titus to go and sent the brother with him. Did Titus take advantage of you? Did we not act in the same spirit? Did we not take the same steps? Well, how dripping with sarcasm were these statements of Paul. Did you hear them? Let me point out to you a couple of places in this section where Paul uses sarcasm as big signs to rebuke the false teachers and then to wake up the Corinthians. So first, let's follow the logic as he uses sarcasm, statement number one. After Paul redirects his readers away from his boast fest, and remember the boast fest that he had in the first part of the chapter, he now turns the corner and he seems to put himself down, self-deprecation here. But in reality, what was he doing? He was blasting the false teachers in verses 11 and 12. He says, for I was not at all inferior to these super apostles, even though I am nothing. The signs of a true apostle were performed among you with utmost patience, with signs and with wonders and mighty works. So let's stop there. As we take in Paul's first sarcastic statement, again, following the logic. Now, there is no way that Paul can consider himself as a nothing. This is nothing short of bringing the false teachers down to a level lower than even he was. This was not false humility, as we will see in a moment. The false teachers needed to be called out as often and as harshly as possible. Now, why was that? Why did they need to be called out? In short, salvation is at stake. See, in Paul's day and in our day, a false gospel leads people to hell, period. Recently, I saw a video of a guy named Vody Bakum, and maybe you've heard of Vody Bakum. I love that guy. He's great. And he forcefully brought out this point. He says, a gospel that misrepresents who Christ is and the nature of what the gospel does is a false gospel. A gospel that does not save regardless of how sincerely one holds to this false gospel. Now, Brother Vody reminded the audience he was talking to about the epistle that Jude wrote, this little epistle. 
It's a wonderful place. It's a wonderful thing. If you haven't read it lately, let me encourage you to do that. It's only about 25 verses, but it's power-packed here. Now, Jude began his letter desiring to tell his readers of the joys of our common salvation. But under the direction, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, Jude did an about-face, and he was compelled then to contend earnestly for the faith once delivered to the saints. He exposed certain asymptomatic carriers of a false gospel, spiritual death, who crept in among the believers, and they perverted the true gospel. False teachers, Jude intimated, looked legit. They sound legit in many ways, but they are spiritual poison. And that is why Paul was so worked up over these guys, the false teachers in Corinth. See, if the Corinthians were to turn away from Paul and buy into what the false teachers were selling, they would be eternally doomed. And so here's Paul saying that he's nothing, but he is in no way inferior to those who we shall say so-called false or so-called super apostles. So if Paul is nothing, then what is he saying about the false teachers? They are less than nothing. And that is what their spiritual offering is worth, less than nothing. Their gospel does not save. But what's Paul's real assessment of himself and his role as one sent by Christ to be the apostle to the Gentiles? Verse 12, he says, Paul knew who he was. The Lord granted him power to perform signs, literally signs of the apostle, to prove that his authority was from Christ. Again, these were signs of the apostle, says in the original language. This implies that the only thing that the false teachers had was rhetoric. In other words, false teachers were all talk and no power whatsoever. Paul, on the other hand, had the ability to perform mighty signs when it was appropriate for him to do so. If a miracle was needed to validate the truth of the gospel, Paul was able to perform it as a true apostle. Paul was a complete package. He proclaimed the message of eternal truth. He backed it up by divine power to show that his message was from God and that he was sent by Christ. Now let's see Paul's sarcasm at work again, this time in uncovering the motives of the false teachers. So let's follow the money now as he uses sarcasm statement number two. In verse 13, Paul asked the Corinthians for their forgiveness. Forgiveness of what? That he did not burden them financially. He spiritually served them for free. His ministry not only had no price tag, but their money did not spend in Paul's store. He vividly drives this point home in each of the next five verses. And here's what he says. In verse 14, he says, I will not be a burden Verse 15, I will spend myself for your souls. 16, I did not burden you. In verses 17 and 18, Paul uses the phrase, take advantage a couple of times, but the idea is the same. Paul did not sell his ministry to any bidder. Financial gain was not his aim, and it never was. Paul's aim 
was the reward that the Lord was going to give him, speaking six wonderful words to him on that day. Well done, good and faithful servant. Now, Paul was after the souls of the Corinthians, not their resources, their lives, not what their lives could produce for him. Paul considered himself their spiritual father. He and his friends were workers together with the Lord, planters and nurturers of the gospel seed. And when it bore fruit among the Corinthians, Paul took responsibility to care for them. New life was born, and he was the father. And Paul brings this home to them in verse 14. He says, children are not obligated to save up for their parents, but parents for their children. And we know this, don't we? Those of us who are parents, we understand this kind of rhetoric, don't we? Most of you guys know Kitty's up there right now in Maryland taking care of our daughter and taking care of our granddaughter, granddaughter number five. And so, you know, they brought her home from the hospital, Lydia, Lydia Jane. It's great. They brought her home. And it's like we do when we bring our kids home from the hospital or wherever they're born, right? And then what do we do as parents for the next 18, 20, 25, 30? We pay their way over and over and over again, don't we? But you know, the sacrifice is well worth it, isn't it, parents, right? <laughs> Go like this. It is. We know. It is our duty. It is our delight to see to it that their needs are met. And quite often, that means money, doesn't it? A lot of it. And he continues Paul's analogy in verse 15. He considered it an incredible privilege to help the Corinthians. But now wrapped up in all that was, all these things Paul was talking about, were the sleepless nights, days on end, going without, robbing Peter, so to speak, so he could have the physical resources to meet their needs. Now I can imagine Paul saying something like this, you know, if I had to do it all over again, I would do it in a heartbeat. Just like any parent. Why? Because Paul loved the Corinthians. And this speaks loudly of the grace of God in Paul's life, shining through him. He was loving and serving who? Those who were former pagan Gentiles. Remember what Paul's background was. It was a very religious Jew. But the Lord Jesus, by the power of his spirit, so changed Paul that he considered these otherwise untouchable, less than people, to be those for whom Paul would be willing to lay down his life, and he did it time and time again. And by the way, what about you and me? Those of us who are saved, he has given us his love for others that by nature we wouldn't come within 10 feet of, would we? Think about some of these people who we naturally don't have a connection with and don't have a a chemistry with. But see, that's what makes the body of Christ special, incredibly so, supernatural, and why unity in diversity is absolutely vital. Now, we're talking about unity. We're not talking at all about the shade of one's melanin, but it has everything to do with one saint of God spending and being spent for another saint of God, regardless of culture, regardless of skin color, regardless of any of this stuff but it's all done for the sake of Christ who has saved each one of us. 
but where the sarcasm exposed to false teachers was simply in his apology to the Corinthians. He said, forgive me for not charging you money for my ministry. For this is what the false teachers did. And this is what everybody in the public eye did. They had to eat as well, you know, so the meme went. And precisely where Paul and the false teachers' paths diverged was right here. See, Paul was their father through the gospel, but the false teachers were hired hands, expecting to be paid for their religious service. And expect it, they did. As we remember, the false teachers were well-trained to move emotions, to pull on heartstrings, and to win people to their ways. And of course, it all came with a price tag. They weren't trying to hang around to influence the Corinthians to their ways because they were interested in their souls. Well, there might have been a little bit of that. But what they were mostly interested in, in the Corinthians' resources, namely their money. And so in Paul's second use of sarcasm, he was in essence saying, wake up, Corinthians. Do you see what they're after? They don't care about you. They don't care about you believing and following the truth. No, what they care about is what is in the offering basket at the end of the day. In light of this, for us today, I have a question. You ever wonder why prosperity gospel preachers are prosperous? Is it because they preach the truth and God blesses them? Or is it because God creates money out of thin air and he deposits it in their bank account? Or is it because prosperity gospel preachers proclaim a me-centered, this-world-only oriented false gospel? The false teachers are so good at making people feel good and diverting their attention away from the truth. Positive messages. You can create your own reality by speaking it into existence. These are their words. I'm quoting them now. After all, you and I are little gods. You can be fabulously wealthy if you plant seed money. You want a million dollars? Sow 10% of that to our ministry. And why stop there? You know, just don't let it be all about you. The leaders need to avoid long lines at the airport. So they need their own private jets. They need to have the gospel go quicker and faster. And so people like Kenneth Copeland can avoid traveling commercial so he doesn't have to travel in a long tube with demons. Those are his words. So believers need to do is just donate their money to their private jet fund. And here's a prayer that Bethel Church, Redding, California, prays quote-unquote, as they're taking up the offering in their church. As we receive today's offering, we're believing the Lord for jobs and better jobs, raises and bonuses, benefits, sales and commissions, favorable settlements, estates and inheritances, interest and income, rebates and returns, checks in the mail, gifts and surprises, Finding money, debts paid off, expenses decrease, blessing increase. 
And to top it all off, there's throw this in for good measure. Thank you, Lord, for meeting all my financial needs. That I may have more than enough to give to the kingdom of God and promote the gospel of Jesus Christ. All this in the name of the one who had to borrow a coin to illustrate a sermon. These people then and now are going to stand before the Lord one day to give an account for their greed and exploitation of God's people. This is why Paul was so upset at the false teachers. The false teachers made it their business to exploit the Corinthians. And Paul told them, wake up. Can't you see what they're doing to you? And having now experienced Paul's loud attention getters, his sarcasm in verses 11 18. Let's now take a look at Paul's sorrow, his coming fruit inspection, and his dreadful anticipation of what he might find in the Corinthians among them in verses 19 and 21. So follow me if you will. Have you been thinking all along that we have been defeating or defending ourselves to you? It is in the sight of God that we have been speaking in Christ and all for your upbuilding, beloved. For I fear that perhaps when I come, I may find you not as I wish, and that you may find me not as you wish, that there perhaps there may be quarreling, jealousy, anger, hostility, slander, gossip, conceit, and disorder. I fear that when I come again, my God may humble me before you, and I may have to mourn over many of those who have sinned earlier and have not repented of the immorality and impurity and sensuality that they have practiced. And by the way, remember in 1 Corinthians 6, Paul said those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. This is serious business. But how many times had Paul corresponded with the Corinthians? How long has he been working with them to help them become what they needed to be as followers of Christ? Can't you hear Paul's broken heart over them? He's afraid of what he might find but he re reminds them of why he continues to address them the way he does. It's for the honor of the king in the sight of God so that they might be built up in the faith. Paul wanted more than anything else for the Corinthians to hear the six wonderful words that he would want to hear as well. Well done, good and faithful servants. So Paul was, once again, willing to risk the relationship he had with the Corinthians, his beloved children for the sake of Christ and for his honor. And Paul's way is a great way to approach precious brothers and sisters when we need to confront one another. How we need to keep in mind that we are going in the Lord's authority and not in any supposed sinless perfection. See, there seems to be this perspective, often held by others, tragically even by Christians, that goes something like this. Unless you're perfect, you have no business confronting me over my sin. See, it says in Matthew 7, don't judge lest you be judged. I've heard it said that that's the, the favorite verse of the Bible nowadays. It used to be John 3.16. Now it's Matthew 7.1. It seems that the sin of judgmentalism is far worse than any other sin in our day. But the reality is we must help one another when it comes to issues of sin. 
Anybody here perfect? I see no hands. Precisely because we are all works in progress that we need to lovingly, gently, with tears if needed, controlled by the Spirit, confidentially, at least at first, call out the sin we see in the lives of our precious brothers and sisters. We need to do this with Paul's attitude. As he said, in the sight of God, speak in Christ. And the mechanics that we use are simple, but they're vital. Here's step one. We get our own hearts right first. See, when we see a blatant sin in the life of a Christian, the first thing we do is that we go to God. Now, I'm, talking about, I'm not talking about, you know, what I think might be a sin here or my hurt feelings or whatever the case. I'm talking about a blatant violation of Scripture, somebody who is not living according to what the Bible specifically says, clearly. Not on the little gray area here. I'm talking specific here. And what do we do? We go to the Lord when we notice this sin in the brother or sister, and we ask God to search our hearts first. Now, why is that? Because a lot of times what happens is when we see it in somebody else, what does that mean? Usually it's in our own lives first, right? So that's why we've got to go to the Lord first. Lord, help me to find out. Help me to know if I'm guilty of this. And then we deal with that. And second, then we ask the Lord to give us a sense of timing in order to go to our brother and sister. We come discreetly, humbly, gently, biblically based, and boldly with those attitudes, with that approach. See, Jesus tells us in Matthew 18, 15, if your brother sins against you, if your sister sins against you, what do you do? Go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you've gained your brother. Thus, the process begins of church discipline. Galatians 6, 1 also has something to say about, about this whole issue, even if this person has not specifically sinned against me or sinned against you. He says this, Brothers, sisters, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual, spirit-controlled, you should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. Keep watch on yourself, lest you too be tempted. The bottom line here is that we need to help one another. Holiness as a church is of paramount importance. Did you know that? Paramount. He died to make us holy. And He has placed us in the midst of fellow Christians that we might help one another follow Jesus more closely to be holy as He is holy. And so now, let's look for a moment at what Paul is sorrowfully with dread anticipating when he comes to not only collect the money for the famine relief, but also to inspect the Corinthians' spiritual fruit. In verses 20 and 21, he's sending on ahead a little bit, a little advance warning of what he is looking for. In verse 20, he's looking for the sins that divide the unity of the body. In verse 21, Paul is looking for sins that diminish the purity of the body. In verse 20, we have Paul's list of the sins of the vision. So let me give you a little nutshell description of these. 
versus quarreling. It's bitter conflict, a continual losing of one's cool. Second is jealousy, a greedy, prideful longing of something that belongs to somebody else, whether something material or even maybe a skill. Anger is next. It can be seen as fury, not just like a little bit, but fury and intense anger bubbling just beneath the surface, waiting to explode. You know anybody like that? Hostility, selfish ambition, winning against somebody else at any cost, regardless of what it does to the other person. Slander is fifth on the list. It can be described as using abusive words that damages a person's reputation. You ever been a victim of that? Sixth is gossip, reports of a malicious nature, often done behind the back of someone. And seven is conceit. It can be summed up like this. Mr. You Planet, or Ms. You Planet. And last is disorder, picking sides and pushing one's agenda, often violently, against others in the church. What a list. What kind of fruit is this? Rotten to the core. But this is what Paul has been dealing with concerning the Christians for years. Any one of these sins can wreck a fellowship of the entire church. And Paul was very concerned about this. But on the other hand, what mercy from the Lord through Paul's pen that he would take the time to indicate the kinds of things that Christ's apostle is looking for. Obviously, lists like these are not exclusive or exhaustive, as though when a person or a church says, hey, I'm not doing all these things, so I got, I'm, I'm good to go, right? No, at least if the leaders were to take Paul's admonitions here and take him seriously, they would at least help the Corinthians to start working on these issues, working on some of these things. And now in verse 21, we see Paul deal with really only one type of of, of sin here, and that is sexual immorality. All these three things Paul was talking about in verse 21 deal with that. But notice what Paul is dreadfully and mournly, uh, mournfully anticipating. He's going to have to exercise church discipline here. Remember chapter, First uh, Corinthians chapter 5, he says, kick out that, that, that sinning person who is having ancestral relationships in his family. But why is Paul focusing on this one kind of sin, simply put, that was the number one sin in the Corinthian culture. Remember how persons who had loose sexual morals, empire-wide, were considered to be Corinthianized. In other words, the church of Jesus Christ in Corinth was to show itself distinct from the culture, not blend in with the culture. And I would say, Every church, every local assembly needs to be just like that. Not to blend in with the culture, but to be different from the culture. And so what can we say about this passage for Grace United? What can we glean by application? What Paul is saying here, sometimes sarcastically and sometimes sorrowfully to the Corinthians. Well, John MacArthur, pastor of Grace Community Church in California, has this comment to make about this passage in relation to the church he pastors. And I think we would all do well to heed his words as application to us 
at Grace United Family Church in Virginia. His take regarding this passage is church growth of all things, church growth. That's what he sees here. Isn't it amazing? He said that God is extremely interested in the growth of every local assembly. He got that from this passage. But how, we might say, how could church growth be from this passage? Well, MacArthur puts it this way. He says that the key to church growth is holiness. Holiness. And the key to holiness in God's church is church discipline. And the adage is true, isn't it? It's not what the leader expects, but what he inspects is is what is really going on here. It's what the leader needs to do. Now, this is true whether the leader is the head coach, you know, of of a team, or a supervisor on the job, or a father or mother if there's no father in the home, or leadership in the local church. It's not what the person expects, it's what the person inspects that counts. When the leadership in the local church takes seriously the issue of church discipline in God's way, with God's attitude, then true church growth takes place. And God is glorified in the midst of all of this. For some, like Grace Community Church, over the 50 or so years that MacArthur has been their senior pastor, the ranks, the numbers in their church has swelled to right now it's about 8,500 people. Can you imagine being part of a church of 8,500 people. Surely not here. <laughs> we can't fit hardly 150 people here. With other churches, it may not be the numbers like that or even numbers at all. But increased attendance, as we know, is God's issue. Our job is to increase holiness amongst us and let God be the one to bring the numbers if He so chooses. And MacArthur pointed out three kinds of sins that Paul highlighted in this passage. First is the sin of false teaching, and he would refer to that as doctrinal error. The second on the list is sins that destroy the unity of the church. And third is the sin that destroys the purity of the church. And I'll say over the years, we have witnessed, as Grace United, all three of these sins. Sometimes the Lord himself has stepped in, and some who have caused divisions, for example, they become deeply offended, and they have left. You know, some people call that blessed subtraction. I don't know, but... And we've also had to take action and exercise church discipline when doctrinal error reared its ugly head, and even when we discover that certain members were living double lives. We've had to deal with these things, and these things no one wants to do. No one wants to confront. Who, who wants to do this kind of thing? They're, they're, they're painful. It's tearful. It's heartrending. But it's necessary. You know, I think we're in a season of blessing now here at Grace United. As has been said, all of us as individuals and as churches are in one of three places. We're either in the midst of a trial or we've just come out of a trial or we're getting ready to go into one. Now, all of us are are like that. We live in a fallen world. It's the way things are. And the challenge for all of us is that we need to be faithful to the Lord regardless of where we are in relation to trials and trouble. 
But I wonder, what would it be like if the Lord Jesus were to dispatch someone to write Grace United a letter? What would he include? Words of commendation? Words of condemnation? Or a mixture of the two? You know, the Lord Jesus in all of his glory commissioned John to write a big, huge letter to a number of churches at the end of the first century. And tucked into this big letter are seven smaller letters. Of these seven to these seven churches, two of them were nothing but commendation. He praised them. Nothing negative was said. And he praised them for their faithfulness, even in the face of suffering and death. Four of them were a mixture of commendation and a, here's what you need to work on, guys. And one of them, Laodicea, was a church which the Lord had nothing good to say about them. Absolutely nothing. They were lukewarm in their commitment to Him. They were self-satisfied. And they were missing something. The presence of Jesus Himself. See, in the midst of all their activity and self-sufficiency, the Lord quietly slipped out the door, and He was not even missed. But the Laodicean church was to listen for a moment. They would hear a faint sound. He was trying to get the attention of persons in the church. He's standing outside the church door. Here's what he's telling them in Revelation 3, 19 and 20. He says, those whom I love, I reprove and discipline. So be zealous and repent. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and eat with him and he with me. So what's the Lord Jesus saying here? First, he says, even to these at Laodicea, I love you. I would not bother with you if I didn't love you. And second, he says, because I love you, I'm telling you to repent. Turn around. Respond to me. And third, he's saying this, open up. Open the door. In the midst of all the lukewarmness of all the other people in Laodicea, I want to have fellowship with you. And you can have fellowship with me. And what if I challenge him? And I'm grateful to the Lord for is that even in the church of Laodicea, there's hope. The church, the Lord is interested even in the Laodicean church, the most worldly of all the churches that the Lord Jesus addressed. And let's not forget the incentive that the Lord gave even to those in the most worldly of all these churches in Revelation 3.21. Here's what He says to them, the one who conquers... I will grant him to sit with me on my throne. What does that mean? Co-rulership, co-reigning, even among the Laodiceans. I will grant him to sit with me on my throne as I also conquered and sat down with my father on his throne. The point is, it's never over till it's over. Even with the church in Laodicea, even with the church in Corinth, even with Grace United Family Church in Virginia. And my challenge for all of us is simply this. What kinds of sins 
are you and I prone to? Tempted to commit that Paul talked about in this list today? Is it the fleshly appeal to false teaching? The feel-good kind where God is there for you and wants you to have nothing but prosperity? Or the kind that you can compromise with? You know, where all we have to do is we just have to change a little bit of the gospel to make it all-inclusive. You know, what did Jesus say? Jesus says, I'm the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father but me, but except through me. Instead of saying that Jesus is the only way of salvation, all we have to do is to say Jesus is a way of salvation. And what happens then? We're now free to move about the country and be friends with everybody. Just that little tweak, just that little one. Where are you? Or what about the temptation to make it all about me? Destroy the unity of the church. To put myself first. You know, my time is my time. My possessions are my possessions. You know, I know Jesus is my Savior, and, and, and I know He understands my issues and problems. I just need to be me, you know. Or are you tempted to yield to the sins which destroy the purity of the church? Sexual sins come to mind. Pornography for men, for women, and for youth. Flirtations with the opposite sex. Or the temptation to not be satisfied with the way that God has made you. And you're beginning to question even your own sexual identity. That is a big thing, you know, in our world. Or even guilt over past sins in this area. Perhaps you've not repented of these kinds of sins and you're playing around with them in your mind. Or perhaps you sought forgiveness, for example, of abortion. And you've confessed it, but you're having great difficulty resting in God's forgiveness. Let me remind us that the Lord's forgiveness is full and freely given. The Lord's mercies are new every morning. Great is His faithfulness. The Lord's victory is absolute and complete. The Lord's promise is sure when He says, whoever comes to me, I will in no wise cast aside. The Lord is much more concerned about holiness here at Grace United than you and I would ever be. May we believe His promise today. May we trust His forgiveness today. May we recommit ourselves to Him and to one another today. And as we all get ready to stand before Him on that day, you know, we're working toward that day right now, are we not? And may we walk so close with Him for the rest of our days that on that day, we will hear six wonderful words. Well done, good and faithful servant. We have a couple minutes. But I'd like just to, after we've looked at this list a little bit, that we might need to just have the Lord do some business with us. And so in the silence... 
Just ask the Lord to search our hearts. And then after a minute or two, then I'll close us in prayer as we finish up our, our service today. Let's let the Lord examine us. Spirit of God, the one who knows our hearts, our thoughts, better than we know ourselves. We see these things that are written down. Lord, and we're tempted to think, well, that's for somebody else. It's not for me. I'm good. I'm not engaged in blatant, overt things that everybody sees. Or, I've received your forgiveness, Lord, but I just can't settle. I'm not at rest. Could it be, Lord, that we don't believe you when you tell us that we're forgiven? Lord Jesus, you hung on the cross for us and you said it's finished. All of it. Paid in full. You as the holy son of God became sin for us. And you did that, Lord, that we might die to ourselves. Die to sin. Live to righteousness. By your stripes, we are healed. It may not be physically, but Lord, surely it means spiritually. Lord, for all of us who have repented of our sin, called upon you for salvation, we are right before you. And you have engaged us and, and you've entered us, whether we like it or not, into a lifelong training of sanctification, to become more like you. And Lord, as we've had an opportunity to have you examine our hearts in this quiet moment, this holy moment, Lord, I pray that you would help us. Lord, help us to turn away from these things. Lord, may we hate what you hate. May we love what you love. Lord Jesus, Thank you for loving us the way that you've done. Holy Spirit, thank you for searching us and giving us the power to live the way that the Lord Jesus would have us to live, living together in love and unity, making disciples, evangelizing the lost. And so, Lord, I thank you for this time. I thank you for this challenge in your word. I thank you for your great love for us. Help us, Lord, to show you that we love you by out of gratitude, keeping your commandments. And now, Father, I thank you for this time that we can, we can give. And Lord, we know that we can never outgive you. And we know, Lord, that your word tells us that it's you who gives us the power to get wealth, that we don't hoard it to ourselves, but we give it to others in need. 
So, Lord, I pray that you help us to give the heart that's cheerful, heart that's overflowing, full of gratitude for what you've done. I pray also now, Lord, as we enter into a time of singing as well, Lord, help us to remember that even in our country, we have people, we have churches, we have states that are not allowed, quote, unquote, to sing. But, Lord, that's not that way here. Help us, Lord, to be able to sing with all of our heart and soul and mind and strength. And we thank you, Lord, for these things. In Jesus' name.